I challenge you to a duel. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the Movie Duel podcast. My name is Peter and I am your host. On each episode of the Movie Duel podcast, we select a subject based around movies and then myself and my co-host each pick a film that we think best fits that subject. So last time on Movie Duel, I was joined by Tarkwood Mandrake and we were discussing our choices for Best Outlaw Biker Movie uh, in which we discussed Mad Max and Psychomania. On this episode, I will be discussing the best Bond film with a brand new guest co-host, Mr. Jamie Russell. But before we get into that, just a few points of order. Um, first of all, uh, just to remind you of how you can get in touch with us here at Movie Duel Podcast. Uh, first of all, you can contact us through our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash Movie Duel Podcast. Uh, you can contact us via email, Podcast at gmail.com and you can contact us through our twitter page uh, which is at movie pod and as i have been doing on the uh, last uh, couple of episodes uh, i'd like to take the time to uh, point you all in the direction uh, of uh, another great uh, movie podcast uh, this week we talked to you a little bit about movie drone uh, which is uh, something that uh, this week's guest host put me onto. he's uh, he's guest on those you'll hear us talk about um uh, the movie drone during the episode, um, but it's a, it's a movie podcast hosted uh, Steve and Mark. I've become a little bit hooked to it. It is something I listen to quite regularly now, and have been sort of uh, dipping into their back catalogue, of which they've got uh, uh, 250 episodes. They've just released their 250th, but it's a great, great podcast. Uh, really great guys. They are quite interactive as well. Uh, you can send them questions. Uh, I did that uh, for their latest episode in which uh, I challenged them to pick their top five movie jewels. And you'll also hear them read out uh, my choice for the top five as well. So uh, you'll be able to see what I think are the best sort of fights in uh, in movies. And they also discuss Finnish action film Sisu, which is a fairly new release. Um, something I watched quite recently as well. Um, so you get to hear their uh, their thoughts on that as well as multiple different things. A really great podcast, like I say, uh, and would thoroughly recommend it. And just a few notes about this uh, this episode of Movie Jewel. Um, we did have some technical issues. Um, there is a little bit of crossover audio. Uh, I've tried to edit that as as best as possible, so it's not quite as clean as we. Uh, we can sometimes be on Movie Jewel, but uh, you'll still hear things pretty clearly and hopefully isn't too distracting. So without further ado, let's head on over to the main discussion. Welcome, James. It's been a long time. And finally, here we are. What took you so long? Okay, so welcome to the Movie Jewel podcast to Jamie Russell. Hello, Jamie. Hello. How are you today? 
Feeling hot um, as a as a fair-haired, pale-skinned <laughs> Scot. This 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 heat is just not good for me. It's not good, not good at all. No, no, no. I'm, no. I'm struggling to be honest. So the, the, we have to suffer for our art in the podcasting world because you can't sit and have a fan on and windows open and everything else. You've got to just sort of grin and bear it. I'm afraid. Absolutely. <laughs> Sat like Ace Ventura in the back of a rhino. Kind of hunting these rhinos. Uh, so, do you want to uh, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, Jamie? Okay. So, I'm a, a 40-something um, English and film studies teacher. I'll, I'll say a little bit about um, what I, how I actually got into podcasting. It was really um, as a result of uh, lockdown, to be perfectly honest. Um, I wasn't... I mean, I listened to podcasts um, prior to that, but they were professional podcasts. So, it was Mark and Commode, uh, the Empire podcast... Um, mm-hmm. But I never really considered independent podcasting. Okay. Um, and so I was in lockdown and I realized that I wasn't watching enough films at all. As a film studies teacher, you know, students were asking me questions about the latest films and I just hadn't seen them. And I was half the time I was sort of lying saying, yeah, I've seen that. <laughs> well, you know, busy family life tends to get in the way, doesn't it? So lockdown gave me the opportunity. I've got all this extra time now. I really want to just rekindle my love for film. So yeah. I started up um, a letterbox account and I, was, and I was watching lots of films. And one film that I reviewed um, was replied to by Paul from Film Busters. Um, and he so said, you know, well, we've just covered this film. Why don't you give a podcast a listen and tell us what you think? And from that point onwards, I was... I was, you know, gripped on on, on these podcasts, and um, I didn't actually record first with uh, Filmbusters. Um, I also uh, listened to quite a few other podcasts, and one another one was uh, Movie Drone, and they were very generous to offer me uh, to come on and, and guest, uh, and I chose uh, John Carpenter's The Thing. And I just hadn't really thought about uh, guesting. I was always, yeah. I was always just thinking, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a listener, um, and I enjoyed it. <laughs> In fact, I really yeah. enjoyed it. I thought, well, this, this is great, and um, it wasn't a disaster, the first one, <laughs> and uh, which always helps, um, and just went on from there. And the podcasting community is just so collaborative, so friendly, yeah. um, and. Uh, and so how I got to your podcast, <laughs> well, that was, uh, actually, I've been meaning to mention a friend of mine. This is someone I went to school with, secondary school. His name is Mark Love, and mm-hmm. uh, he uh, contributes a lot to uh, Evolution of Horror uh, discussion yeah. group. I actually got him on to that, uh, to that podcast, so I think this is something you'd be really interested in. Mm. Um, and so then he loves he loves it and contributes a lot. Um, and he is also, I think he is friends with Vanessa. Uh, yeah, I believe so. Yes, well, yeah, they they they, they, they communicate through uh, evolution of everything. And she told Mark that you were looking for guests, mm-hmm. um, and he told me and. <laughs> And the rest, they say, is uh, uh, geography. No, I've got that wrong. <laughs> well, I think, you know, it's definitely, yeah, I mean, you've, just from speaking to you in the first instance, you know, you, you put me onto uh, Movie Drone and to Filmbusters, the two podcasts that I've listened 
to no end of their episodes mm-hmm. over the last uh, couple of months and, and really sort of got into those and and they are really good guys i've communicated with uh with paul from the film busters crew and uh and um be mark be mark yes from movie drone um and it is such a great community in that sort of amateur podcasting background, I suppose. It, everybody's, you know, retweeting each other's posts and, and, and pushing for, for more of an audience. And, and it's, just, it's just a great little community. And, and I'm, you know, I'm not a, a, a big user of Twitter. Or I wasn't until the last sort of month or so. But, you know, it's a really good community on there. And uh, and so thank you very much for putting me into, into oh, that direction. And, and, and Twitter was... The other thing I ended up uh, joining <laughs> for lockdown, I'm sure my wife thought I was going through a midlife crisis, but uh, yeah. Did you buy a leather jacket? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure I did. <laughs> well, okay. So obviously with this being your first time on, on the Movie Jewel podcast, I hope mm-hmm. you're the first of many, the unwritten rule is that I get to pick the first subject. Okay. So the first subject uh, that I picked for you, Jamie, was to pick your choice for uh, the best Bond movie, so yes. this is a a movie uh, series that's that's quite close to my heart. You know, it uh, it filled many a uh, an hour in my younger years. Uh, a lot of fond memories of of watching Bond films on uh, on various different platforms. What's what's your sort of history with Bond? Are you a fan in yeah. general? I think very similar to you in that um, it's it was a very uh, influential part of my childhood. Uh, growing up with uh, the Bond films, and we are both—I'm sort of presuming here—but we are, we are both of the age of sort of pre pre satellite uh, viewing days. Well, I am certainly pre satellite, and it, what I mean by that is, you know, just having <laughs> just having BBC One, BBC Two, yeah. ITV, Channel Four, and I think there's just so much there's so much choice now, uh, and it's it's taken away a little bit of that sort of that experiencing something really special. Um, and so, yeah, on key holidays, there was always, on uh, Christmas in particular, I remember, there was always two or three really, you know, uh, good Bond films. Yeah. And it was uh, something that um, I watched um, as a as a young, impressionable uh, man, a boy, should have a man, boy, should I say. <laughs> and, it, and it is just sort of, it's the... Um, it's the idle sort of sort of male fantasy thing, isn't it? So this mm. this this ultimate cool super spy agent, license to kill, you know, gadgets, fast cars, ladies. You know, it's 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 just this sort of male fantasy figure, and for for a young impressionable individual, <laughs> it's 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 going to be a, it's going to be effective, isn't it? What, what more can you want? Yeah, exactly. So um, yeah, and so. I remember watching. It was. I, I did watch uh, whatever Bond film was available, but it was particularly the the Roger Moore Bond films that I was particularly familiar with. So mm-hmm. my choice, I think, has been influenced by, you know, Roger Moore being the the, the main, the predominant Bond in the seventies and 80, late seventies and eighties when mm-hmm. I was particularly watching uh, the Bond films. Um, so yeah, I think. I think it's it's almost a bit like the the relationship that people have with Doctor Who. Um, you have your Doctor Who if you're a fan, or if you know, even yeah, if you just watched exactly. it when you were younger, you know, it's it's always going to be more more than likely going to be that one that you grew up with or that you saw mm. uh, at the age that you were watching it, basically. Yeah, and they're the one you're going to have the fondest memories of as well, I suppose. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And uh, it's it's memorable for all sorts of reasons. Uh, my wife is a very big Bond fan. And at, in fact, Goldeneye was the first Bond film that we watched at the cinema. Oh, wow. And we've watched all, we've watched all of the, the sub- <laughs> subsequent ones after that. So, yeah. Okay. So... A little bit of background about James Bond. Uh, James Bond uh, was created by British journalist and novelist Ian Fleming in 1953. He is the protagonist in a series of novels, films, comics and video games. Uh, Fleming wrote 12 Bond novels and two short story collections. Uh, Eon Productions, which was responsible for the official James Bond film series, uh, started by Albert R. Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman in 1961, uh, after they uh, sought financing and gained the rights to Doctor No. There have been 25 official Bond films that have been made since, ending with 2021's No Time to Die, which neither of us picked. Did you enjoy that one, though? Um, (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) not really. To be fair, <laughs> we'll maybe get on to the Daniel Craig era at hmm. some point during this podcast. Uh, but he has been played by Sean Connery, George Lazenby, Roger Moore, Timothy Dalton, Pierce Brosnan and Daniel Craig, all in the official Eon series. Uh, and also, I believe, is it David Niven? Correct. Uh, Casino Royale. In Casino Royale. And uh, once again by Sean Connery unofficially with a very, very bad hairpiece in Never Say Never Again. Uh, so some facts for you, Jamie. Uh, James Bond, the name James Bond, was taken from a birdwatching book that Ian Fleming owned. He chose that name as the most sort of mundane name that he could find that wouldn't be interesting to anybody in a, a spy capacity, I suppose. Uh, there are more actors who have played Blofeld than have played Bond, with seven playing the supervillain and uh, six playing the super spy. Eon stands for Everything or Nothing and uh, was used as a title for a game on the PlayStation 2 in 2004 and was considered for the title of multiple films. Uh, Maud Adams is the only actress to play two Bond girls, uh, firstly in The Man with the Golden Gun and secondly in Octopussy. I have some trivia. Oh, go go on. I like trivia. Um, (laughs) Very famous individual... Um, was uh, arguably in- very influential in the James Bond films getting produced in the first place as uh, as actual uh, actual films. Um, do you know who that famous person is? JFK. Correct. Yes, it was uh, 1961. Where he uh, he said that his favourite book was uh, From Russia with Love, um, and that just catapulted Ian Fleming's uh, sales and paved the way really i think for dr no the following year have you have you read any of the novels i haven't i haven't to be no. perfect my wife has read all of them <laughs> yeah um i haven't no I've, read, I've only read a couple i mean they are vastly different to to the films the films are only very loosely based on on the books and uh you don't really have the the big sort of descriptions of any big action set pieces or anything like that which are obviously a staple of the films but uh, they're not fantastic literature um, orig- um, originally Ian Fleming was not supportive of Sean Connery being cast as Bond mm. uh, he felt he was going to be uh, too uh, too rough and well, well Sean Connery is you know, a working class uh, bodybuilder from Edinburgh <laughs> so I'm not surprised he thought that but when he, when he found out that uh, um, he had lots of female admirers. Uh, uh, he thought, well, yes, maybe maybe he could actually um, be effective as Bond. Um, and Roger Moore was actually originally uh, in consideration 
mm-hmm. as well, alongside Connery. He um, but he was uh, contractually uh, uh, caught up with uh, TV uh, shows at the time and couldn't actually do it. Yeah, no problem. So obviously, with with it being my choice of subject, uh, Jamie, it was uh, down to you to have first uh, first pick uh, of selection. Uh, so would you like to let the people know what you went for? Sally, well, I went for The Spy Who Loved Me. You ever got the feeling somebody doesn't like you? Lost one of our nuclear submarines. Where's 007? This chasing means the Russians can track our nuclear submarines underwater and sink them. Somebody got hold of the plans of that tracking system and is trying to sell them. That missing submarine had 16 Polaris missiles aboard. You are very suspicious, Mr. Bond. Oh, I find I live much longer that way. Now, pay attention, 007. I want you to take great care of this equipment. There are one or two rather special accessories. Q, have I ever let you down? Frequently. At 12 noon, they will have reached firing position. Within minutes, New York and Moscow will cease to exist. Global destruction will follow. The new era will begin. Egyptian builders, British agent in love with the Russian agent. They taught indeed. I have a message for you. I think you just delivered it. Every person who even comes into contact with that microfilm is to be eliminated. When this mission is over, I will kill you. Uh, directed by Lewis Gilbert, uh, writer Christopher Wood, uh, Richard Mayerbaum, and uncredited contributions from author Ian Fleming, Ooh. which I wasn't aware of before. No. Uh, cast, Roger Moore, of course, James Bond. Barbara Bach as Major Anya Amasova, Kurt Jurgens, Stromberg, the famous Richard Keel, something I should have mentioned before, something that terrified me as a child watching this, as Jaws, Bernard Lee, um, Desmond Llewellyn, of course, as Q, and Lewis Maxwell as Miss Moneypenny. And production, I thought I'd put it production design as well. Okay. Because Ken Adams and his production design, he's, he's, he's a legend, and mm-hmm. uh, his production design in, in this, this film is, is, is spectacular. It's, it's, a, it's a lovely-looking film. Yeah. I'd forgotten how good this film looks, yeah. So, in a globe-trotting assignment that has him skiing off the edges of cliffs and driving a car deep underwater, British super spy James Bond unites with sexy Russian agent Anya Amasova to defeat megalomaniac shipping magnate Karl Stromberg. Who is threatening to destroy New York with nuclear weapons? Bond's most deadly adversary on the case is Stromberg's henchman Jaws, a seven-foot giant with terrifying teeth. <laughs> it that it really is 
quintessential Bond, isn't it? Spy Who Loved Me is when you think Bond, this is everything that it's like a checklist of all of them. Yes, yeah, exactly. So, do do you remember the first time you saw this? I don't remember the first time, to be honest. Um, I would have been young, I've been seven or eight or something like that. Um, I just remember watching it a lot, and yeah, there's this key sequence in it that's um, well, I just, I just, you know, so so memorable to me uh, watching it back recently. And quite a few of them were with Jaws. I mean, he he had he did have just such a uh, effect on me. Um, yeah. Just just terrified me as a as a child. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's a it's a very even though looking back at it now, it's it's quite a sort of comical appearance, and you can sort of see obviously that he's very very much struggling with the teeth. Um, and as I think he's gone on record to say that it wasn't the most uh, comfortable of appliances were, to be worked in with they were agony apparently <laughs> um and they were designed by do you know no no i don't know they were designed by stanley kubrick's daughter wow okay is that the same daughter who made the the, the shining yes, documentary yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, okay um but yeah george you know he's, he's again is is that sort of quintessential villain silent deadly I agree with what you're saying. I think he's he's very scary, especially when you, if you're watching this as a, a young lad in late 80s, early 90s, should we say. Um, you know, just somebody biting at your neck. It's very sort of vampiric, and that's his his, his modus operandi is, is, is biting somebody's neck. And it, I don't really remember any other sort of Bond henchman being quite that sort of violent, I suppose. The only born, yeah. the only bond henchman to return as well. Yes, exactly. But that probably the less said about that, the better. Yes, that wasn't one of my. Yeah, it was a basically that was a response to Star Wars being so successful. Yeah. yeah. And you thought, well, everyone wants science fiction now, so let's send Bond into space. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's some good bits about Moonraker. I like uh, Michael Longsdale's a brilliant villain in that, mm. but the rest of it is, you know, double taking pigeons and. Uh, but anyway, yeah, let's not talk about Moonraker. <laughs> no, let's not. Yeah, no. so, so um, one of the reasons uh, why I chose this is that it was a real sort of response, I, I think, at because at the time, the man with the golden gun failed at the box office. Mm-hmm. And so that's uh, Roger Moore's second film. It actually earned less than On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which is considered to be, be, be really disappointing. Mm-hmm. So it was really a case of, you know, the franchise could could have ended at that point. It was yeah. It was really needing something special, and so uh, Broccoli was a sole producer, I believe, for for this at film. At this point, I yeah, think he was. He yes. Was. Yeah. Um, and he decided to go big. He said he, mm-hmm. he I picked out the things that were successful from the from the Connery Bonds, and well, the globe-trotting element needs to be there, so let's have lots of uh, multiple uh, exotic uh, destinations. Yeah. Um, let's have a spectacular opening credit sequence with fantastic stunts. Um, you know, this sort of things that then become the blueprint for, for future Bond films. Um, we need to have a megalomaniac villain for, for Bond. We need to have a really memorable henchman. And all of these elements are are really in uh, the spy love me mm-hmm. um they doubled the budget so yeah. that's saying that they really were going all out for this if this had failed it would be an end of bond potentially yeah. um but i think roger moore was 
struggling. I, I think he struggled in the first two films to move away from Connery's shadow. Yeah, felt that he was he definitely. was he, he was struggling to find his identity as Bond, and this is the film where he really found his feet and yes. he was he was con- much more convincing as Bond. Um, and I, th- I think it's really that sort of middle ground for Moore, isn't it? It doesn't end up being, it doesn't go to the the silly lengths that some of his the next few do. Yeah. Um, but it it moves on from, like you say, moves away from the the Connery Bonds. It it, it it's where he stamps his own identity on Bond mm-hmm. in this film. Yeah, I think there's something about the third film, uh, in uh, particular uh, Bond <laughs> Bond series, because you uh, Connery's third film was Goldfinger. Mm-hmm. Moore's, of course, is this. Um, Craig's is Skyfall. Brosnan's would have been. World is not enough. I'm not sure if that's his highlight. No, 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 no. <laughs> well, we will get into this when we talk about yeah. that choice. Um, the, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, but I think, you know, you're right. I think that is, yeah, Goldfinger's definitely the highlight of, of Connery and Skyfall's definitely the highlight of, of Daniel Craig. Obviously, mm. Dalton and uh, Lazenby never got to, no. to sort of enter into that discussion, really. Mm. Um but I think, you know, just to go off kilter a little bit, I think uh, Dalton got there with his second one, I think, mm-hmm. even though it was a completely different kind of Bond film. He, he was asked originally before Lazenby to mm-hmm. do Bond, but he was he, he considered himself to be too young. Mm, definitely. He would definitely have been, yeah. yeah. You know, I would I would consider the hallmarks of a great, Bond film, there's, there's there's certain things, and one of those is going to be uh, the villain, the Bond villain. How do you think Carl Stromberg is as a Bond villain? He might not be up there with the best of the Bond villains, but I I do think he is effective. I I think unfortunately a little bit of it is you, you can't get away from the Austin Powers uh, sort of uh, parodying of certain certain Bond characters, and mm-hmm. of course. You see that in in what uh, Mike Myers did with 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 some of these characters, um, but no, I, I think I think he's got some great lines, and he he's got this sort of sadistic element to him, which was, you know, quite quite threatening. And no, oh, I've um, I thought he was he was good. I mean, I'm I'm I'm, I'm not going to sort of say that he is he's he's, he's uh, the best of the villains in the series, but I think he's mm-hmm. I think he's a strong villain. I think he's str- I think he's stronger than Sean Bean. Hmm, interesting. Okay, we'll leave that for a little bit later. I mean, you know, my he's obviously limited by the script in terms of the fact that he's he he doesn't leave his his stronghold really. He's you know he's he's just literally sat in his headquarters. I think there's this story of that he's you know he's 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 uh, comfortable under the sea and he thinks that's where the future lies and you know. Very much, uh, they they're very much sort of retread it in Moonraker in that uh, the Drax character wants to keep the human race going in space, where he wants to sort of keep the human race going under the sea. Yeah, but I'll, I, I I'll quite, avoid I, I'll avoid singing um, Little Mermaid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I quite I quite like that. It gives a sense that you know this is his domain, this is his lair. Mm. That that that's. That's not. I don't think that's a, a, a negative of the script uh, as such. But I can, I can see how he, he doesn't really get a lot 
to do beyond get that. to do a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, he's he's sort of menacing speeches, and he's not very sort of threatening physically. And I think that you know, in that sort of the climax of the film, he's he's sort of dispatched relatively easy. Which I think, you know, you can you can level that at a lot of different Bond villains. I think they're you know they're just sort of secret layer and and giving sort of speeches and making these sort of quippy one-liners. I don't think it's I don't think it's a bad villain or the worst villain. I mean, some of the worst villains in Bond have been the most sort of charismatic. But I think uh, the film could have been so much more if he'd have been a bit more proactive, shall we say? Mm-hmm. And the other part of a Bond film, a key part of a Bond film, is the Bond girl. Or oh, girls, plural. Or girls, yes, indeed. Um, and I, I was quite surprised with this film, actually, because obviously one of the the sort of key points that's sort of thrown at, especially the older Bond films, is that they're extremely sort of uh, sexist and, mm-hmm. um, you know, not... Uh, you know they don't portray female characters in a in a fantastic light, and this, it, you know, for a Roger Moore Bond film, is is not too bad in in that in that perspective. Mm. Yeah, because it, it sort of plays on that when when she's first introduced. It's been a while since I watched the film, but it's along the lines of that, you know, they are calling this agent, um, and you see this uh, man in bed. Yeah, hairy chest and looking very mm. sort of manly. So, oh, you're assuming He's, you're assuming that this is going to be the yeah, Russian agent, the most, the most, the most British Russian agent in the world. <laughs> yes, and yeah, and uh, and then you find out that it's someone else, and it's a woman. Um, uh, what's her name? As a, um, it's Mrs. Mrs. Ringo Starr. That's correct, Anya Amasova. <laughs> Triple X. Um, yes, yes. Um, but I, I, I heard no innuendo there at all. <laughs> I I heard that she wasn't particularly happy with certain elements of of her character, apparently, right. and she wasn't hugely, you know, impressed with. She thought she basically felt that uh, James Bond was a misogynist, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. So she 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 wasn't particularly happy, apparently, doing mm-hmm. it. That's well, that's why that's why that's why I read. But uh, yeah, I think cons- considering the other Bond girls that have gone before her, she was lucky to have one that was much more progressive, on mm-hmm. on on the surface anyway. Oh, definitely, yeah. She's you know she has, you know, for a vast majority of the film, she's got you know one up on Bond. She's she's one one step ahead of him. Um, anyway, right to the very end, you're not sure about her whether she might yeah take revenge. Exactly. Exactly, yeah, and but you know, as with all of them, they succumb. It's the eyebrow; it's got to be on <laughs> it. <laughs> I'm just thinking of the spitting image puppet of uh, Roger Moore eyebrow when you say that. <laughs> yeah, I think she's 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 a pretty um, a pretty good Bond girl. I think if you you know if you're going to use that term, I think it's probably not the the best term to use these days. But she's a fairly competent actress. Mm-hmm. Don't think she's. Um, I can't think of anything else I've seen her in other than. Um, oh God, what's the film with Ringo Starr in? Yellow Beard. I'm sure she's in that. It's a very obscure film. Really bizarre. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. Okay. And so yeah, it's. Uh, Sorry. I mean, there are lots of sort of really good uh, set pieces uh, in the film. Um, so I mentioned the opening uh, credit sequence. Just brilliant uh, uh, stunt sequences and 
on the on the, on the skiing. Um, although whenever you see a close up of Bond, um, <laughs> you see this got this terrible rear screen projection behind yeah, him. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Well, that does that. that yeah, you know, I don't think that goes until the late nineties because there's a little bit of that in in my choice, which is yeah. is another twenty years in the future. Yeah. So, I think that's just the staple of Bond. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and then you and then the, the big title, you know, uh, title sequence song. Um, I think the most effective ones are uh, sung by big uh, female uh, mm-hmm. artists. Um, so Carly Simon um, for this. I think it's a very it's a very interesting Bond theme because I don't think it's it's quite different to anything that came before it. I think I don't think it's um, it's overly Bondy, mm. if that's even a phrase. That yeah, maybe a phrase maybe, that we're just maybe. Now, it, but... it just is it the, the the lyrics are iconic, but yeah, I can I can see what you mean. It uh, it does it, it doesn't quite have tone, I suppose, of of of, of and styling of, of some of the other ones. Um, but no, I. I I like it, and then you got the very you know, the iconic opening of his parachute, <laughs> Union Jack. Well, it's the it's the first. I can't think of another example beforehand where Bond is so patriotic in that he's got the mm. you know obviously the Union Jack on the. Um, That's right, uh, and he's, he's on the parachute, and he's dressed in uh, navy uniform for, for quite a lot of the start of the yeah. film as well, isn't he? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I think you know that's that's probably the first instance that I can think of. Anyway, I don't think there's there's another example of that earlier on where he's being openly sort of patriotic no, and he's got no. a. a <laughs> Yeah, he's not the best spy in the world. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think uh, I think Roger Moore, particularly in this film, he just he just feels like the right Bond, and this is I think that this is probably the what Ian Fleming had in mind when he when he was mm-hmm. coming up with Bond, um, and he's got that sort of sophisticated, gentlemanly approach, which is which is different to Connery, who had a much sort of stronger approach. And but but very humorous as well. I'd forgotten how much mm. uh, humor he he put into. The, I think he had a good relationship, I understand, with the director, and they yeah. they really worked well together. And he helped him bring along the the, the humor. And yeah, he's, he he seemed to be a, a comfortable using yeah. using the, the humor. Whereas in the previous films, he he just wasn't. It just this is this is the film where he came into his own as Bond. Yeah. Well, I think this 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 very much like my choice is that the humor is kept or the right humor is kept to the right points of the film you know the the silliness and the slapstick is is there present in the, the scenes with Q and Desmond Llewellyn and you know the the over the top sort of practical effects and these silly gadgets and things like that and then it's the humor outside of that is left to maybe the one liners from from more and 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 stuff like that there's no sort of slapstick or you know, visual comedy. You know, either side of that scene where he, where the he meets, is it in the pyramids? I think, isn't it, where they go and and uh, and and they see the sort of the different gadgets uh, that the Q's got on the, yeah. on show. Yeah, and uh, what, what do you think of the submarine car? Shall we call it <laughs> swimming car? Well, I, I I think it's 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 one of those things that's probably a little bit of a stretch. Oh yeah, you know, in in terms of realism, obviously, but at least at least it's not an invisible car. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's, uh, but yeah, you know, I think the way it's filmed and the way that um, you know the, the that it's 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 shot, 
really effective. It's, it's very, very, very clever. It's seamless. I mean, well, I, I was deliberately looking to see if I could work out the difference. Sort of, uh, they had, I think, six different designs um, that were used, um, different models, um, and yeah, it's just so, so well done. Um, but yeah, I, I, again, this, that was another distinct memory from watching this when I was younger. The, the car was just that, that just blew my mind. Mm-hmm. So and anything sort of gadgetry linked with the cars was 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 uh, inspiring well, for me. I was I was definitely surprised how much on rewatch how much spycraft there is going in this film as well. Mm. There's a lot, you know, the, there's a lot of exposition that's that's sort of set around James Bond being a spy, you know, and not just going from one set piece to another. Mm. Um, the first, probably, you know, obviously after the the introduction and and everything else. The first third of the film, you know, even into the second sort of into the middle act, there's a lot of spy work going on. You know, these 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 two, you know, opposing agents uh, are fighting for the same sort of information. Um, and I think that's that was probably stuff that was missed from a lot of, especially Moore's uh, tenure as Bond. Uh, the, the spy work was was definitely missing from there. You know, even though some of it is quite repetitive in this film, there's a lot of getting a lead, that lead is killed by Jaws, mm-hmm. then they get the next bit of information, then that, that lead is killed <laughs> by Jaws. But I think it's there to sort of showcase the locations in this film, you know, whether it's pyramids or these ruins and, uh, you know, taking a ride in the back of a, a telecommunications van and things like that. There's a lot of sort of set pieces that are set in Egypt, I think it is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. This sort of secondary Bond villain... Is it Shandor? I think his name is. Who's this sort of peanut-looking guy that gets that gets sort of tossed off into the uh, tossed? No, that's not right. I'll start that again. (laughs) 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 That gets uh, dispatched. um, Dispatched. Yes. Well, he he sort of throws him off the uh, off the thing, doesn't he? I've lost my train of thought completely. Back to you, Jamie. You pick something to talk about. <laughs> um, no, I just um, I'm sort of trying to think of all. I mean, it's, it's just all. It's all of that, as I said before, this is establishing this this blueprint really for what uh, makes a successful Bond film. Um, and yeah, the, the set pieces were were spectacular. Leading leading up, I mean, see the production design. I, mean, I have to mention uh, Kane Adams again. Mm-hmm. The production design is just spectacular. And the, yeah. the Atlantis underwater, just just amazing. It's all building up to that. So I think you get getting the sense that you know this it is building up something quite momentous as a showdown. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't even think. There's there's the point where uh, I think it's somewhere in the middle of the film where the Atlantis sort of comes out of the ocean. Yeah, yeah. And they're riding underneath, and I couldn't figure out how they'd done it. Yeah. Whether that was miniature, whether it was some kind of you know forced perspective yeah. or what. I just could not figure it out. Yeah. It looked amazing. Absolutely, um, and it's this sort of large scale. You know, by doubling the budget, they've sort of made it very clear. You know, where they want to take this. Um, you know, as a series, they want it to be large scale, big, big uh, set pieces, um, real sort of sense of stakes, and that's what you have in, in the Spiral of Me. And I think that's what makes it just very memorable and really successful mm-hmm. and uh, yeah that's why i chose it so i've got a couple of questions for you regarding the spy who loved me go on in 
Um, well, it's more, this one's more, maybe more of a general thing, but... I do have one thing. Go on. <laughs> what famous director was originally approached to direct The Spy Loved Me? I know this from somewhere in the back of my head. V- very famous director. Was it Kubrick? No. Can't imagine Kubrick doing a Bond film. Spielberg? Correct. Yes. Spiel- Spielberg was very keen on doing a Bond film. He, mm. he, was, he was approached... Understand, he declined at that particular point. I think he was, he was too, he was, he was a bit busy on on another project. Mm-hmm. Um, he ended up doing Close Encounters, I think. But we know from Jaws that he's a big Bond fan. He mm-hmm. he left a little clue. So there's a scene in Jaws when yeah, when they um, catch that first shark, which is obviously not the actual shark, and they take it uh, back and they cut it open to see what's inside. Mm-hmm. When they're cutting, uh, kind of open, taking everything out, a car registration plate comes out, and mm-hmm. it's got 007 on it. Mm-hmm. And so that's that was Spielberg was saying, I want to direct a Bond film, and yeah. there are obviously clear sort of influences uh, in Spy Love Me from Jaws, and yeah. naming the the main henchman Jaws is an obvious nod to that, I presume. Mm. Um, so well, yeah, did, I think he always. I remember. Documentary about Indiana Jones, and he said that he he felt Indiana Jones was his James Bond, and he wanted you know especially with things like Indiana Jones girls rather than Bond girls and and things like that, and he really saw that as his 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 attempt at doing Bond. But yeah, I've got a question for you, Jamie. Mm-hmm. Is side boob a staple of seventies cinema? <laughs> That's an interesting question. Um... <laughs> As an academic as you are, uh, well, I'm not sure if I'm. Uh, that's a that's a rather niche area you've chosen <laughs> of academia. I seem I seem to remember whether it's just from Bond. I don't know, but you know, certainly things like um, uh, what's the other example I thought of? Clash of the Titans, which I mean is is I think 1980, so that's maybe a yeah, little bit later. 81. But it seems to, or even Carry On films, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a hell of a lot of side boob. Yeah, well, it's... It, it, it was their way of—I can only presume—it was their way of getting as close as possible to nudity without actually having <laughs> the nudity, because then that's they can then get uh, that through the censors, um, and yeah. and the, the American censors—they were legendary. I, I, I was I was I was obsessed with censorship when 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 I was when I was uh, growing up, and American censors apparently had real issues. Always have had issues with sex and nudity, but not violence. Oh. So probably that is a way of getting, you know, if, if you are showing any more than just the side, then <laughs> then you're likely to be caught. Then, then you know, that's going to have to be cut if um, if you want to get your, your PG or PG-13 or whatever the, mm-hmm. the rate would have been in America. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it probably would have been, you know, we need to give a little bit of... Uh, um, we want we want to go as close as we can to have an actual nudity, and so that's as far as we can go. That's my. There we go. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Has that helped? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it just sort of popped in there because I thought, oh, you, know, you, you you saw a lot of it back in in those sort of those sort of times, and I suppose it's it's the reverse for the British sense, isn't it? You you did. That's British right. films had a lot of nudity that's and right. a lot less violence. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, what did you think of Bond of Arabia? His little stint as uh, sort of uh, 
uh, in his Arabian oh, gear, oh, yes. popping to see. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it looks very I'd much like I'd, he sort of. I'd forgotten about that. Yes, he dropped out of an Amdram nativity. And... Yes, <laughs> yes, that wasn't that wasn't uh, the greatest. Yes, it's better. It's better than his Western get up in Moonraker. I, I, I must, I, mu- <laughs> I must have selectively blanked that out of my watching memory. <laughs> well, it is one. Of, you know, it, it's definitely, it's definitely the best Roger Moore Bond film. Oh, it's hundred percent. But it. It's it's not you know it's it's it certainly has some of those staples that made the Roger Moore years not the best or you know oh, considered. Oh, going in. Well, I think that those sorts of things where he's dressed up in you know. Oh, that, that's like a, a that's a that's a very minor thing now. <laughs> I don't I don't I don't I don't think that it's so minor that I'd forgotten about it. Oh no, you no, don't get me wrong. I'm I'm a big proponent of the Spider Me. It's definitely one of the best more films mm. um it's probably his is best i think there's a couple that may be underrated as as bond films but in terms of his acting you know it's probably the best he's acted in a bond film there's a certain point where he mentions his his wife obviously from the storyline from uh, on a magistrate's secret service mm-hmm. and that's actually acted quite well for roger moore <laughs> it's uh, you know he's he he displays a lot of emotion. He plays it really well. Um, it's definitely um, his his best performance as Bond. Definitely. Um, I think there's a couple of bits that are sort of retreads of past Bond. We get another fight on a train, which has been done obviously in From Russia with Love, yeah. which is definitely the best train fight in a Bond film. Robert Shaw, brilliant, uh, and obviously Live and Let Die. Which was only what two films before this as yeah, well. Yeah. The retreading that already, and then the only other thing I've got to add to this film really is uh, an X Files connection. Now, I was I <laughs> I deliberately didn't go back and watch it again because I I was just I was just wanting to see it you know hear from you, Mister <laughs> Preston. I I I wasn't. I'm I'm a massive X Files fan, and we'll <laughs> be able to speak about this later. I wasn't thinking that there would be any X Files. Uh, connections with this film because of of its age i thought you know thinking these two films you know the primarily british films i suppose yeah obviously there's a a lot of sort of americanisms and americanness to the films uh but i was thinking this is going to be a tough one and literally the first film i watched in terms of research was yours and within five minutes there was an x-files connection i was like that's it done uh so the x-files connection is Mr. Walter Gottel, who plays uh, General Gogol. Ah. He was Victor Klemper in season three's Paperclip. Really? Man who's obsessed with his orchids yeah. and genetic oh, modification yes. of alien human hybrids. Yes. Wow. <laughs> now did you did you see that or did you research into it? No, I saw that. As soon as really? I thought, saw him I thought that's yeah. that's that's uh, it. Wow. X Files connection. Impressive. And uh, you know, it didn't. I mean, he's in Walter Gottel's in in numerous Bond films. He's in a lot of the mm. Roger Moore Bond films, um, and I believe he's in one. He's in the Living Daylights as well, mm. uh, and was supposed to be in My Choice as well, uh, but uh, couldn't do it. And due to... Season three is one of my favourite seasons. I should have picked that up. Paper clips, an epic episode. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's it's one of those driving forces to the X Files. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, there we go. Wow, very good. Well done. Okay, so anything else that you'd like to add for the spy who loved me, Jamie? No, I think that's it. We've covered quite a lot there. Okay. 
All right, we'll uh, take a short break then, and uh, we'll pop back with uh, my choice. Yeah, well, these these seeing these films are so long. Uh, I've noticed these blockbusters are nearly three hours, three or plus. You know, I always need to go to the toilet. So yeah, I'm, I'm probably going to have to take a toilet break. Oh, oh, and and I can I can also have a rant about popcorn when we return. Okay, so welcome to the intermission. Uh, this is the part of the episode where I ask my guest a random question, a question they're not prepared for, and get their honest first answer. So, Jamie, are you ready? I hope so. Okay, so this is quite a general question, really, not really related to the to the episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think is the best movie poster ever made? Oh, best movie poster? Um... I'm just thinking whether it's a, that that's difficult to come up with a, a response <laughs> on the spot like that. But I'm going to pick out just ones that you know that are that I can think of at the moment that were particularly striking. A Clock at Orange is is a brilliant poster, mm-hmm. um, and, it's, and I remember having that on my wall as a student. Um, it's probably what it's sort of uh, best one I can think of, and, and just. Just uh, it's that that iconic uh, uh, look of uh, uh, Alex as dressed as a droog and and yeah, it's 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 just so so striking and the colours yeah. and the design of it. Um, it's it's just it's it's a classic. Um, the thing I love the thing was one of my favourite films and just uh, that's just you know again simple but very striking. And effective. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes the the simple ones are the most effective ones as well. You know that uh, I think Alien yeah. Alien is yeah. is 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 brilliant, um, yeah. and it's a combination of the visual, what it looks like, but then also it it has to have a really memorable tagline. So mm-hmm. in space, no one hear you scream. Yeah, iconic. Um, that that's that's the three that I'm going to offer up just in the spot. Okay, okay, cool. Yeah, I'd go with that. I mean, you know, when I thought of that question, one of the things that sprung to mind for myself was Reservoir Dogs. Oh yes. Obviously, the iconic um, sort of standoff, Mister Pink and Mister White. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely, um, it's, it's same as you. You know, I think you sort of think back to what was what was an inspiration to me as as you know adorning my bedroom walls and uh, and that was definitely one of them around that time as well there was uh, felicity shagwell from the spy who shagged me oh yes <laughs> but that wasn't a movie poster that was just um, something personal yes. uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah i'd i'd say alien as well aliens definitely it's 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 simple it's it's effective and the thing as well, the fly is another one that I think yeah. I'll throw in that mix. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it sort of, you know, it, it shows exactly what it needs to show. I'm going to podcast on the fly at some point. It's my mission to do that. So I hope, hopefully I'll do it with Movie Drone because we did the thing and the blob and then I wanted to finish it off with the thing. That, oh, sorry, the, the, uh, the fly. 
your your personal apocalypse trilogy is that what it is well, it's 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 three of the most perfect remakes horror remakes i can think of you see the other one i'd throw into the mix um not necessarily a movie poster but a front cover um because it always used to draw my attention when i was a young lad looking at the video store um it normally adorned the bottom shelf in the horror section uh, was american werewolf in london oh yes because it would have that mid transformation yeah. shot yeah and it always used to draw my attention and um it was obviously something i didn't watch till till i was a lot older mm-hmm. but what what a vision yeah yeah <laughs> and what a film um oh yes absolutely I can't wait to one day discuss that on the movie show podcast uh but i'm sure we'll get there okay so uh can i can i, think... I uh, uh give you my uh popcorn rant you can yes of course yes i, I feel i feel it uh i need to speak to you i mean i love i loved going to the cinema um mm-hmm. but i have this anger of okay. people who eat popcorn <gasps> i think i think it's you know if you think that you you got that uh, message before the film starts, you know, turn off your phones, you know, stop talking. But they really should have <laughs> something for, you know, silent eating or, or at least attempts to eat quietly. The problem with popcorn, it's just the crunching noise and then it's the, the noise it makes as it's, and it's struggling about in those great big boxes, the smell of it. Well, I, I went to... Uh, 40th anniversary of uh, Return of the Jedi with uh, with my daughter recently, and there was a guy wow. n- right next to me, massive big box of popcorn, making this racket throughout the film. I think he stopped <laughs> a, he stopped about halfway through, and he put this box to the side of me, and we both looked at each other and sighed with relief. <laughs> it was over. <laughs> Lovely. Just so irritating. Rant over. But then it's it's not as bad as nachos. They serve nachos. Yeah, I know. The same, isn't it? Any any uh, any sort of food. Do you know what? I'm I'm going to go one better than that because I'm I'm a little bit mutton. I'm a little bit deaf. I I can sort of zone those kind of background noises out quite a bit. Right. But I have a rather sizable nose. Certainly sizable nostrils. So I have an acute sense of smell. And during... It was The Return of the King, which is a long old film in a cinema with no intermission. And the gentleman next door to me had must have had the biggest bag of pick and mix in the world. And it was just emanating this horrible, sickly sweet smell for the entirety of the film. And it almost made me sick. So there we go. Yeah. It's not just down to your... Aural senses. Yes, absolutely. It's down to your schnoz as well. Yeah. <laughs> and that completely put me off the film. Anyway, I think I can hear people coming back. Oh, taking yes. Their seats. Yes, so can so I, yes. We must be quiet and uh, okay. head back to the main feature. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you. Okay, so that uh, leads me to uh, let you know what my choice was, which was uh, from 1995 was Golden Eye. 
world is the target. 72 hours ago, a secret weapon system was detonated over seven iron. And the threat is real. GoldenEye exists. A radiation surge that destroys everything with an electronic circuit. You can still depend on one man. I want you to find GoldenEye. Three. Find who took it. Two. And stop it. One. Name's Bond. James Bond. The world's most famous secret agent is back. We aim to please. And this time, 007 is facing the ultimate enemy. The man who knows him best. Hello, James. What an unpleasant surprise. 006. What's the matter? No pithy comeback? He was your friend. And now he's your enemy and you will kill him. Is the satellite in range? Target is London. Now, the entire world is about to be caught in the crossfire. See you in hell, James. You first. Kill him. The pleasure will be all mine. Did you check her out? That's it all. Three clicks, arms the fuse. Don't say it. The writing's on the wall. Grow up, double seven. I think you're a sexist, misogynist dinosaur. A relic of the Cold War. <laughs> No, James, I was always better. Both of you, stop it! You like boys with toys. The trick is to quit while you're still here. I wouldn't think of it. Charming, sophisticated secret agent. Shaken, but not disturbed. <laughs> Get us out of here! Bond, only Bond. Man just won't take a hint. You don't need the gun. That depends on your definition of safe sex. On November 17th... Rabbit! United Artists brings you... Trust me. James Bond. Why can't you just be a good boy and die? That's one trick I've never learned. Directed by Martin Campbell, uh, starring Piers Brosnan, Sean Bean, Famke Janssen, Isabella Skorupako. We'll go with that. <laughs> yeah, we'll go with that. Uh, Godfrey John and Alan Cumming. Uh, synopsis for Goldeneye. Years after a friend and fellow double-O agent is killed on a joint mission, a Russian crime syndicate steals a secret space-based weapon program known as Goldeneye, and James Bond has to stop them from using it. Goldeneye. This was the first Bond film that I remember being released. It was the first first new Bond film I remember seeing, basically. It was obviously six, seven years after the last uh, release, which was uh, Licence to Kill, 1989. Which is a, the biggest gap at the time in the whole series. Yeah. 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 You know, so it was, it was a big deal. It was, you know, I remember it at the time. Um, being a big deal, and the fact that uh, you know they'd not been Bond for uh, such such a long period, so it was it was something I was interested in seeing. It was probably, you know, as we discussed at the top of the episode, experience of James Bond was very much watching the classics 
on bank holidays and Easter and Christmas and things like that and watching with my uh, grandmother which you know I've mentioned multiple times on this uh, podcast uh, my she was very much my introduction to a lot of different forms of cinema um, and she she very much liked uh, the Bond films so this was this was an event for me you know it was it was something to to look out for it wasn't something I saw at the cinema I'd have been um what 13 at the time so not necessarily pop into the cinema of my own volition uh you know it was something I saw when it came out um on video I think it was it was probably the first bond that I owned on you know physical media as well and I was just blown away by it I think it was a it was a very competent bond film biggest point of this film really is is the modernization of James Bond it moves away from some of those those sort of classic bond tropes i suppose when it comes to uh, things like sexism maybe not to the point that it doesn't it it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't it, doesn't. it, it calls it out it yeah, calls it out calls the sexism it out. yes it does it doesn't necessarily you know it, it takes a long time in this film for the classic bond tropes when it comes to women to come out i think yeah. it doesn't necessarily scream it from the start I forgot how much, you know, how far into the film this is, but, you know, obviously M is the big character in this film that, that calls out Bond's sexism. She calls him a sexist, misogynist dinosaur, a relic of the Cold War. Yes, Cold, yeah. exactly. You know, and obviously that's that's another point of this film is that it's it's post-Cold War, obviously. Yeah. The big point of the Bond films pre-Goldeneye are the Cold War. Yeah. You know, mo- more often than not, the stories and the the main driving force of the films are the cold war and that's sort of gone here but not and and m you know the casting of judy dench i think is a, is a massive high point for this film she would obviously go on to to play a massive part in the the bond films after this um and she was always a high point in all of those films i think up until obviously skyfall skyfall yeah it's the final one yeah even though there is a bit of a reset in the in the canon in those films, she she's there to be to call Bond out. You know whether it's it's on a on a on that sort of sexist standpoint or on a moral standpoint. So does Miss Moneypenny. Yes, exactly. You know this is the first time. You know, obviously the the classic Moneypenny played by uh, Lois Maxwell, um, very much a character who is you know smitten with bond and she's uh hankering for some attention for from him um and then you've got caroline bliss who played uh money penny in the the dalton films who's who's pretty much the same she you know she doesn't move the character on any 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 distance um but then you've got samantha bond the aptly named samantha bond you know very much like Piers brosnan has sort of diminishing returns in the series um but here you know she's not she's not pandering after bond she's i'm I'm not really that interested unless you know you're gonna make good on your promises really it's right for the 90s yes there's aspects of it that's not right in terms of bond being a misogynist and sexist and sexism on the whole but at this point mid 90s it's it's the right sort of movement forward in the Bond series, especially with the Money Penny character. 
but you also get that with the 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 Xenia on a top character I think probably aside from Mayday in um, A View to a Kill this is the most femme fatale Bond girl or character in the entire series yeah I would agree with that played fantastically well by Famke Janssen who I have the biggest crush on I had the biggest crush on her from this film she just plays this amazing character who um again very sort of strange disturbing <laughs> yeah you know she's very she's getting off on the violence yeah, that's yeah. that's even for mid 90s that's very very um ahead of its time you know she's there's this point where at the 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 seven the seven eye installation she guns down all these uh, all these personnel and she's getting off on it she's you know she's biting her lip and all sorts she's, she's mourning and then and then uh, to the point where the, the guy next to her looks looks at her with some concern <laughs> yeah and you know this is this isn't something that's ever really been addressed in a bond film maybe slightly subtext in past films possibly but this is just out and out you know she's there's this point where she is on the verge of having sex with this admiral mm-hmm. obviously for the purposes of, of of gaining access to this 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 uh, helicopter and it's very much using sex to kill this guy she kills him by you know suffocating him with her hips mm-hmm. you know me as a 13 year old young man <laughs> this was just dynamite <laughs> yeah and i've got a shout out to the <laughs> The bit where Bond actually gets on the boat and the body for this admiral um, chucks something—I can't remember his surname—he um, pop, you know, he falls out of the cupboard, and he's just got this face, <laughs> this uh, this face of ecstasy. You know, he's just obviously been killed and suffocated at a particular point of uh, yes. <laughs> but yeah. You know, and that really it really pushed the envelope, I think, for Bond films in terms of sex. I think they did it a little bit later on with Die Another Day and uh, Brosnan's uh, sex scenes with uh, Halle Berry was a little bit, yeah, but went from being PG to being 12. Yeah. To being 15. You know, even though Live, uh, License to Kill was a 15, it was given a 15 certificate in this country. It, 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 it had to be cut together. Yeah, exactly. Was, you know, and, and that was mainly down to its its violence. It wasn't yeah, it was any fun, more yeah. um, salacious than, than any other sort of Bond film. But this was, you know, this was very much um, pushing the envelope in terms of censorship. But I think even though it has a lot of points that sort of point towards the modernisation of James Bond, it still has a lot of the staples. It still has a lot of those things that you're familiar with in terms of Bond. The Bond music. Shout out to the late, great Tina Turner. Obviously, she's Absolutely. Passed, passed very recently. Written by uh, Bono and the Edge from U2. But it's just quintessential Bond theme, this is. You know, it's. I always find it such a shame that Tina Turner didn't do more like Shirley Bassey did. Obviously, Shirley Bassey did uh, three bond themes and i always think it's a shame that tina turner didn't get get the chance to do a little bit more no i agree and it's a great a great song great opening song and even the theme the main bond theme is saved till later on in the film you don't hear that traditional bond theme the 
Um, I'm not going to attempt to do it now, but we all know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You don't hear you you don't see that, or you don't hear that until at least two thirds into the film mm-hmm. with the 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 tank chase. Mm-hmm. You've got the obvious big action set pieces in this film. Really great opening with the dam jump, which I would say would rival the opening of Spy Who Loved Me. I think. Well, I, I I do agree, but I would have to say that. All of these elements were set up by Spy Love Me, and then mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. sort of echoed and repeated by Goldeneye. Of course, of course. But um, you know, even in terms of, I remember watching documentaries back in the day of how risky that damn jump, uh, bungee jump was. Just even the most hardcore of daredevils would not even risk doing that because you're <laughs> jumping against a wall. And you, you see, when he lands, he gets whipped back. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the stuntman I, must have got some sort of injury from that because he's whipped right higher, and there must have been quite a strain on the, on the body to do that. You can just about tell that it's a stunt double. Just about. It's pretty close for a Bond film. It's pretty close. Um, and then, obviously, jumping out of the plane uh, or jumping which, into the plane. Which, which, which is spectacular, but... And I, Very I know you have to suspend your disbelief. I, I, I do understand that, but it is the most preposterous. Even even you know you're not going to get Ethan Hunt in the latest Mission Impossible try anything like this. No. I mean, it's just no way with that with that. But anyway, I'll leave that. Then I I would present in evidence the tank chase, which is fucking monumental, absolutely brilliant. Clearly filmed on location, the looks of things. Yeah. Exactly. You certainly won't get away with that now. And this is the point where you get the Bond theme. This is, mm. you know, this is Bond being his, his most Bond. He's, you know, he's he's crashing through walls. He's straightening his tie. He is Bond being Bond, absolutely and unequivocally. And it's just an epic scene. I think, you know, the, yeah. there's, there's the, the obvious product placement with Perrier at this point yes. as well. Yes. <laughs> which would be a bit of a staple of the Bond films until, until No Time to Die, really. Apple uh, products. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which is a massive shame, but you know, they're, in, they're in the money-making business, I suppose, aren't they? Yeah. But yeah, you know, it's it, it's still, you know, to talk a little bit more about the Bond staples of things, you've got the Allies, you've got Joe Don Baker as these sort of, uh, the CIA um, ally, you know, very sort of comical, little uh, indiscretion with this this car that won't work. Moves him on to uh, Robbie Coltrane. Again, again, the late, great. Late, great Robbie Coltrane. And a cameo from a very young mini, mini driver. driver. I noticed that, yes. Yes, singing. I, with a very I, dodgy accent. <laughs> I had such a crush on mini driver when I was a young man. Um, now, can I, can I ask you a question? Go on, go on. And it's an echo, I think, of uh, your first question to me. What do you think of the main villain? Well, I think Sean Bean, I think, is a competent villain in the grand scheme of Bond villains. Mm-hmm. I think he hams it up a little bit beyond his capabilities. Uh, there's certain points. I think he's the middle part of the film doesn't ring true. The bit on the train where he's trying to goad Bond and he's trying to say, you know, she smells like strawberries and all this sort of thing doesn't ring true. But I think 
the, the you know the, the first part the deception at the start of the film and the end of the film really you know that he's you know this uh, embittered uh, supervillain who you know wants to get revenge on the world and be rich and have more money than God I think is the quote I like that I think mm. where Sean Bean fails is being creepy yeah I mean I think one of the main problems with GoldenEye is that it doesn't really know who the main villain is or it doesn't have a clear enough sense of the central main villain because if you have Sean Bean, 006, I mean, I quite like the idea of it being someone who's, you know, who's supposed to be a close friend of Bond, and that's an instant twist. But it doesn't really explain or explore what their friendship was. Mm-hmm. And then, so yes, you have the opening scene, which is quite, uh, it's quite well done. A bit of deception uh, for England, James. <laughs> and uh, but then it takes how long is it before he comes comes in the, the film again? It's it's well over an hour, isn't it? Mm. And he then comes in, and okay, you get the you get the you know plot reveal twist, or um, which is effective. But you then have a villain really who doesn't hasn't really been established um, effectively enough. And um, you have other characters that you think could end up being villains as well. And it's a case mm. of so many sort of mini villains and not really a great enough understanding of who is the main villain in this film and i don't i don't think that sean bean is 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 a is an effective enough actor or he's given enough in the okay. script to to be more than he is or was in this performance yeah i wouldn't totally disagree with that i think um like I say, I think the, the middle part of the film, it really struggles with the Alec Trevelyan character because it almost tries to make him an equal to Bond and that he tries to be that sort of... There's a point uh, when he first reveals himself to be the mastermind of this whole plan and he says, you know, what's the matter, James? No... No, no, no pithy comeback or something like that, isn't no, it? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no pithy comeback. And then sort of proceeds to be exactly that, you know, exactly that sort of uh, motif. And I think it does struggle in that middle part with making him be this nefarious sort of character. And it, it messes about a little bit with his character in the middle. When, you know, if, if they'd have just gone with, I was fucked over by the British government and my parents were fucked over by the British government and I'm taking my revenge kind of thing. If they'd have kept with that a little bit more, yeah, it would have made him more of an effective villain. Not that I don't think he is. I think the chemistry between him and Pierce Brosnan is pretty good. I think you get that sort of impact of him being them being friends and them being allies. But yeah, to, you know, to to go back into some of the Bond staples, you've got Desmond Llewellyn at eighty two playing the same character he's played. Is this his last? Is it, is it his last performance? No, no, no. no? Um, uh, his last performance was uh, "The World Is Not Enough." Oh, was that the last one? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, very much like "Spy Who Loved Me," the slapstick and the comedy, or the main sort of comedy elements of this film, are kept to the gadget cut sort of section. You know, he's um, hands off. Uh, that's my lunch. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant way to end the scene with with Q. Um, you know, assuming that this sandwich is going to be some kind of nefarious <laughs> Q 
gadget to to dispatch villains. Uh, no, it's just his sandwich that he wants for his lunch. Um, but you've got the you know the introduction of the pen. Obviously, comes in later in the film uh, with uh, Boris Grinchenkov, played by Alan Cumming. Who my first introduction to Alan Cumming was uh, a sitcom called The High Life. Oh yes, yeah. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, I do. I remember mm-hmm. watching that on a on a Friday night. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but he's, you know he's pretty uh, a pretty effective mm-hmm. character as well. Again, I don't think it's it's something that you've really visited before. Probably the characters of Winton Kid in Diamonds of Forever, which were the sort of comic relief villains. You know, that was probably the first time I can think since then that that you've had a, a villain or a, a villain's ally who's been mainly the comic relief of the film. And you've also got time for a judo chop in this film, which. I'd not really picked up on before this sort of last viewing, um, but I'd recently revisited some of the uh, Austin Powers films <laughs> as well. <laughs> I'm thinking, you know, he just gives his, you know, Zenya a judo chop. I mean, you, yes, you, um, you do look at these films in a different way post Austin Powers. You just can't help it. Of course, of course. But something we discussed earlier, I think. This is the best Bond debut in the history of Bond. We talked about, obviously, Goldfinger is when Connery came into his own. Um, Spy Who Loved Me, when Roger Moore came into his own. I don't think The Living Daylights is the better of the two uh, Dalton films. Do you rate Casino Royale? I do, but I don't think it's better than Skyfall. For a long time, I really despised Skyfall because it, the villain wins. In the end, mm-hmm. in the grand scheme of things, the villain yep. wins, and the end of Casino Royale is a complete dud. It's, no, it's a big set piece thrown into a film that's that's really good as a spy thriller, but it's not great as a James Bond film. It's got, I'd say, three of the best set pieces in the in the series. Casino Royale. Yeah. It was. Me. It was. It was close. <laughs> it was close to being. It was close to being my choice. Um, wow. Okay. Well, I mean, after I mean, there's the the, op- the opening scene. I think the, with the, with the sort of a, a, a sport, isn't it? Was it is it free running? Yeah, free running. That's it. All right. Yeah, yeah. With, with the guys that is a specialist free runner. That sequence is is, I think, one of the best pre you know, pre sequence. It was. It was a pre-credit sequence isn't it it's the opening scene i thought the pre-credits was the... oh it says no yeah it's the the black and white sequence isn't it yeah. yeah which which again is really good um but that that the free runner sequence there's another sequence in the middle involving it's in this sort of tanker it's a it's a, it's a fantastic set piece and there's another scene at the end so three three well, at least two see two scenes anyway that stand out, okay. and I, I do think Daniel Craig, as much as towards the end, completely fell off, completely. <laughs> but I think it was a strong start, and it, and it's and it's definitely a rival, Goldeneye, I think, okay. as, as as best debut. What I would say for Pierce Brosnan is diminishing returns, because Tomorrow Never Dies is good. It's not brilliant. I love. Jonathan Price as a villain, brilliant, and Michelle Yeoh as a Bond girl. Um, but 
other than that, there's not a lot of good stuff to say about that. World is not enough is marginally worse. Mm-hmm. Dying again. <laughs> well, yeah, I think, and that all hinges on what I was saying about what I'd like to say about Brosnan as a Bond is he doesn't do emotion very well. There's a slight speck of emotion in this film. Obviously, you know, yes. he's been portrayed by uh, Alec Trevelyan. Um, and he plays that reasonably, but obviously as it goes on through his films, you know, you don't get that he's um, that upset about um, the death of Terry Hatcher's character. Um, he's not de- that upset about... Well, he just, just doesn't play emotion very well, I don't think. Mm-hmm. You could even look at Mamma, Mamma Mia... Is a <laughs> I wouldn't know if I haven't, I haven't watched it. I refuse to watch it. Sorry. You don't need to watch it. Just watch the comic relief um, parody. All right. Of uh, with uh, Philip Glennis, they're playing uh, the Pierce Brosnan character, <laughs> and that's pretty much it. Okay. Really. Okay. Um, but Pierce Brosnan is not well known for his emotional performances, I don't think. No. And 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 that's where he really falls flat as James Bond. <laughs> There's not an ounce of fat on this film. It just keeps going, set piece to set how, piece. How how long is it? I think it's about. Is it? It's it's quite a bit over two hours, isn't it? Just a little bit over two hours. Is it? Yeah. Isn't that two hours twenty or something? Because like I was. I think it it should have been cut down to about two hours. I think it's about twenty minutes too long. I can tell you, it is. Two hours ten. Okay, ten minutes too long. Where would you take the ten minutes from? Well, I'd have to go over the scripts <laughs> and see it scene by scene and decide then. But I think I think upon I I, I do have a bit of a, a thing about um, so that the latest Bond film that was that was three hours, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous that you do not need a Bond film that's three hours. You you don't need a Bond film that's over two hours. I don't think no. And it's a real problem with uh, you know, some, some you know, modern modern films that they feel that they they need to justify two and a mm. half two and a half hours three hours. It's it's just it's just ridiculous. They need to edit these well, films more. They need to write them better. The only bit where it sort of loses me with this film is once they're ready to storm the bad guys' uh, secret layer. Uh, you know, there's a little bit of uh, sort of one two between. Uh, Bond and Natalia, where you know, why, why do you want to do this? Um, that's probably it, though. I don't think there's much in this film that you could seriously cut down. I think there's probably more in The Spy Who Loved Me. You could cut that one of the scenes of we need to find this guy, and then Jaws kills this guy. You could cut one of those out and not really lose anything from the film. Fair enough. But the runtime, perfect. One hour fifty-eight. Just under that two hours. They must have been listening to me. <laughs> it's a tough one because I you know, I'm a big Bond fan. I like Bond films. I recognise that there is a lot of problems with James Bond films in general, whether that's sexism, even racism, a lot of the earlier films. Mm-hmm. Xenophobia, really, if you could say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you can take them for entertainment that they are. Yeah. And whether it's a bit of a nostalgia with GoldenEye being the first Bond film that I know was released 
or I'm conscious of being released in my lifetime. Um, I don't know, but I think, you know, it just sort of moves, it moves Bond firmly into the 90s and it it takes it that little bit further and questions some of the staples of what Bond is. Mm-hmm. So maybe there's a little bit of that. Did you have any other considerations? Um, there are a few, yeah. Um, so Casino Royale and Skyfall from Craig I would have considered. Um, I didn't consider any more, more films. Maybe Live and Let Die, which I think is quite an interesting one, but it's just very different. Um, Goldfinger I would have considered. Uh, Honor Majesties, again, from Russia with Love. I mean, it, it, I mean there, there are... <laughs> there are plenty of choices, uh, but I, to be honest, I did go for something that was um, more sort of comfortable for me from a nostalgia perspective. Something I mm-hmm. had seen a lot, and it was a bit more yeah. of a comfort factor connected to that. Whether it's the best Bond film or not is is, is irrelevant. It's the best. It's the best one for me. It's the most memorable one for me. So that's why I went for it. Well, I think that's why this is such an interesting subject. Bond films, it really encapsulates what Movie Joe podcast is about. You know, we look at the films that are the best, the worst, overrated or underrated, and you could pick a different film for each of those categories based on a Bond film. Yeah. You know, my considerations, Goldfinger, like yourself, you know, obviously that's probably the staple of what Bond films became in terms of story, villain, music, the archetype of a Bond film. The Bond car. Yeah, exactly. You know, and for me personally, as you know, obviously up until a certain point, I'd selected Licence to Kill as uh, as as the best. So I prefer The Living Daylights. Really? Yeah, I do. Okay. <laughs> so I think, I think that's, that's an underappreciated Bond. Really? Yeah, I, I think so. That was my main point, you know. I don't necessarily consider Licence to Kill the best of Bond, but I could would consider it the most underrated. Yeah. Because I think it, 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 it changes the perspective of what you consider to be a great Bond film. It, it, it changes the stakes of a Bond film. It's not just about queen and country. It's about personal revenge for Bond. So do you think they just pushed it too far? It was too gritty? It was too... Uh, I think it was just not right for the time. 89, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, Bond was up against things like Die Hard and Lethal Weapon. Yeah. Where it wasn't considered... um, It was considered pastiche. Hmm. And it was the wrong time for that kind of Bond film. If you'd have put that kind of Bond film in the Daniel Craig era, then it would be considered probably one of the best, I think. I think the Daniel Craig era, you have to say that they were really responding to, you say, the the Bond series, Jason Bond series at that Mm -hmm. point. They really sort of pushed the spy genre onwards, but then more so, I would say, Mission Impossible. Yeah. Um, and that's what is, you know, you, you've got that continuing and it looks like that might push. I mean, I, I thought Fallout was fantastic. Um, I'm really looking forward to the latest one. It's to see, when to see whether it takes, how, you know, what direction it takes the, the spy genre. To delve into the Mission Impossible series, I loved the first one. 
the Brian De Palma original, yeah. brilliant, absolute brilliant. Exactly what it needed to be in terms of spy genre. Mission Impossible 2. John Woo. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. Bag of shite. Absolute bag of shite. <laughs> Atrocious. Some great motorcycle stunts, but yeah. Yeah. Um, I didn't mind 3. I thought that was all right. J.J. Abrams one, yeah. Yeah, but I think that was helped by Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yes, he's brilliant, yeah. I I, I, I love him anyways. He's, he's one of my favourite, again. Uh, yeah, yeah. Department. Have you seen um, Licorice Pizza? I haven't, no. <gasps> I haven't. You need to watch Licorice Pizza. Just yeah. Okay. how brilliant his son is. Fantastic. Right. Okay. To use a movie drone quote, that's your homework. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but yes, um, other than that, I watched the next one, which I wasn't overly impressed with. Yeah. Uh, uh, I can't remember what it's called. That's, yeah, I know which one it is. Yeah, yeah, that's the that's the, the Dubai one, isn't it? The film in Dubai on, on the, the Burj Khalif. Biggest, yeah, that's, that's all it. I can remember from it is got the guy from Lost in it, Josh Holloway. Yeah, no, yeah, was, yeah, but maybe that was a bit of a dip. But I think Fallout and what's going to come in the next two parter, I, th- I can really see something special. Do you not like Fallout? It takes a lot for me to watch a Tom Cruise film. I see, right. There's, we've, we've got the nub of it now. There you go. Why did you say that before? <laughs> it takes a lot for me. I've watched too many Scientology documentaries. Oh, I, I ignore all that. <laughs> yeah, you, you have to just take it as a as a as a screen presence. Forget everything else. That's that's the only way I'm able to watch a Kevin Spacey film. Now, I mean, he's made some of the best films. Usual Suspects Seven, some of the best films. I'm able to separate the art from the artist. Yeah. Oh, okay. gone go, go off topic here. Well, no, it, it, I think it's it, it's a very good point to raise because it's it's thrown at a lot of Bond films. You know, their past and the things that you can throw at them with regards to sexism, uh, racism, or anything. You know, a lot of things mm-hmm. that you can throw at film at uh, Bond films. I think it's important to view them in the time that they were, they were made. Yep. Definitely. Even even at both of these films, you know, 1995 against 19... What, 77? Same year as Star Wars. And the year, the year of my birth. <laughs> which is why I said 40-something 40, 40 before. Now I can reveal my age. I'm 46. That's one of, the, one of the reasons why I wanted to choose an older Bond film. I wanted to choose one... You know, from the seventies or, or or earlier, rather than let's say a Craig film, because um, I think it's just got more interesting things to talk about as a product of its era as well, and and it also needs to stand the, stand the test of time. I think. I think yeah. All of Craig's films they need time to reflect on before you can yeah appra- properly appraise them. And I think you know, not to discount my own choice, but I think the Spy Who Loved Me is. As I've said before, it's quintessential Bond. It's not too sexist. It has the action set pieces. It has the Bond theme, but... It's got the Bond villain. It's got the Bond henchman. It's got the Bond henchman. But then I would also... Something I've missed out on my choice 
is you've got Godfrey John, who plays uh, Arumov, mm -hmm. who plays a particularly great Bond henchman. Mm -hmm. A very underrated Bond henchman. Mm -hmm. But is he better than Jaws? Probably not. Stylistically, in terms of filmmaking, he's probably better than Jaws. But in terms of extravagance and... Im impact. And impact, yes. Probably not. But then I would say that Sean Bean is a better villain than... I don't I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> Look, Alec Trevelyan gets dropped from a satellite to the ground, <laughs> and then the satellite drops on top of him. As soon, soon as he goes down that ladder, you're thinking, you know what's going to happen here. Stromberg gets shot through the barrel of his own elongated shotgun. Yes. <laughs> he does. So, in terms of movie jewel legacy, I would say we're almost at a tie. You think? Yeah? Oh. Mm, I think so. You've not I'm, convinced me otherwise. I'm, I'm, I'm happy enough with a tie. I think, I think we've argued our cases <laughs> passionately. Yeah. And, uh, I, th and... I, I think I, the things we've both conceded, and, but I think we've both, both choices inevitably an element of nostalgia is going to yeah. be there and we've, we've both admitted that yeah but you're also you know you, there aren't an element of the time i suppose yeah is 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 a big thing with both of these films in the spy who'd love me you've got side boob and in golden eye you've got what's the word i'm trying to think of this as nicely as possible there is a um Fetishistic, maybe? <laughs> Fetishistic. <laughs> yes. Modernisation of the Bond genre. Mm. We'll put it that way. <laughs> but I would also like to throw into my argument for this film. Uh, for global revenue, adjusted for inflation, uh, GoldenEye was the seventh most profitable Bond film compared to The Spy Who Loved Me, which was the 13th most profitable. But I think some of that could have been people that were not expecting it to be so good, because The Man With The Golden Gun was the least <laughs> profitable of the whole series. So a lot of the people said, well, Bond is finished. I'm not going to bother going to see Bond. And then they missed this classic. So that's that's, that's my... Possibly. Or they were too busy watching Star Wars for the 10th time. This is very, very true. But they could also have been very um, preoccupied in 1995 with watching The Usual Suspects. Oh, that's just a small independent film. <laughs> but a classic. Okay, so um, that leads us to the end of the episode then, Jamie. Thank you very much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure. A quintessential pleasure. Fantastic. Um, and I thank you very much for joining me. Would you like to uh, let the listeners know about how they can hear some more of your work in terms of the podcasting world? Well, for podcasting, um, I've done a few episodes. I've done three episodes for Movie, movie Drone. The latest one with my daughter, which was just a fantastic experience. Very proud moment. Um, and I've done, I think, a similar amount for Filmbusters. They indicate on the in the episode where, whether I'm on it or not. Um, and I've got a few upcoming uh, episodes um, 
for film buses in particular, but hopefully for movie drone as well, and hopefully with yourself. Regarding um, social media, um, you can find me on Twitter. That's that's where I uh, do most of my social inter- social interactions. Um, I do have a Facebook page, but it's it's not really active. Um, for Twitter, it's um, moviemania77. Um, and Letterboxd, um, I've got uh, accounts, uh, just Jamie um, with uh, uh, Woody from Toy Story Icon. Um, so yeah, I'm happy to uh, speak to, uh, reply to uh, any anyone on those platforms. So it just leaves me to say thank you very much to Jamie for joining me on this episode of the Movie Joe podcast. Um, he will hopefully be joining us on many more. And just leaves me to say goodbye. And for Jamie to say... Goodbye.